I'm excited to share with you this bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. I was given the opportunity to hold a live recording of the podcast at CrimeCon 2019 in New Orleans. Because there were so many great guests lined up to be at CrimeCon, I took the opportunity to invite two of them to be part of this live recording. Sky Borgman is an award-winning director and cinematographer who has shot documentary films all over the world. Some of the notable films she has produced include Mumia, long-distance revolutionary about the life of the former death row inmate Mumia Abu-Jamal, and a documentary film about the band Quiet Riot. And she's also the director of the very popular and buzzed-about documentary Abducted in Plain Sight that was released on Netflix this year. Jan Broberg, the main subject of Abducted in Plain Sight, was just eight years old when her family met Robert Birchtold, who became obsessed with young Jan and set about manipulating her entire family in order to have access to her. He would later abduct her not once, but twice. The documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight, tells the story of the Broberg family and Jan's brainwashing and sexual molestation by Birchtold. I was honored to interview both Sky and Jan for this live recording. It was a fascinating look into the psychology of a child sexual predator, grooming, and how a skilled perpetrator can manipulate an entire family to exert his will. I hope you enjoy this interview recorded live at CrimeCon 2019. So, um, tell you who I am first, and then I'll introduce our very, very special guests that I'm really excited are here today with us. I'm sure you guys are too. This is who you came to see. Um, my name is Esther, and my podcast is Once Upon a Crime. Thank you. <laughs> and through podcasting, I've been able to meet so many cool people, you guys. I mean, you know, you're here today, right? I mean, you're meeting all these so, the people so interesting, um, putting out these stories, really kind of informing us about things that happen in the world that maybe we don't always know happen or how they happen or why they happen. And I think a lot of us are really um, very interested in that. Like, how do, how do things happen? And when I see a film like Abducted in Plain Sight, it, it gives me some answers, but it also creates more questions. Do you guys get that sense too? When you finish watching something really thought-provoking and you're like, wait a minute, what about this? Like, I don't understand this exactly and I would really love to talk about it, right? So that's why we're here, to do that. Um, that's really what my whole podcast is about, is really trying to understand the elements behind when bad things happen. You know, bad things happen to good people, um, things that are just hopefully outside of our purview where we're not, this isn't something we're dealing with every day. Um, because they can be pretty um, tragic, sad, and um, life-altering. So we, but we do want to understand those things, and so we, we talk about it, we put those out in the world. And I think this is a really good example, is, is your film, and I'll introduce you right now, but of that. Because I think that the conversations I've had with people, they're like, but, you know, I don't understand. Like, why did this happen, or why did that happen? And there are so many, I'm sure reasons that maybe we don't think about that deeply because we don't we don't live in you know we haven't experienced that so it is very um puzzling to us until we hear from the people that actually lived that experience and then maybe we can understand it a little bit more i think that's really what this is about okay so i want to introduce first of all um sky borgman who's the director of abducted in plain sight no <laughs> And Jan Broberg, and this is her story. So we, thank, you. thank you both for being here. 
so much. Really, really appreciate it. Um, so who here has seen Abducted in Plain Sight? Everybody. <laughs> Pretty much everybody. Okay. Um, I'll do just a really, really quick summary. I won't even do it any justice at all. If you guys seen it, you know this, right? But just in case, if you know, maybe your friend said, no, you have to come. You know, I know you haven't watched it, but you have to come in and hear this talk, okay? So they, they kind of get an idea. Um, so this, like I said, is Jan Broberg's story. Um, and this began in the 1970s. So some of us were alive and some of us were not. <laughs> but um, the Broberg's neighbor and friend was named Robert Berkthold, and he turned out to be a sociopath, in my opinion, and a pedophile who became obsessed with eight-year-old um, Jan, the Broberg's daughter. Um, and then when she was 12, uh, Berkthold abducted her, keeping her for five weeks, during which time he convinced her of a secret mis mission in which she was required to give birth to his baby by the time she was 16, or harm, uh, great harm or death would come to her and her loved ones. Um, after she returned to her family, he continued to manipulate and um, not just Jan, but also her parents, her family. He would later abduct her a second time. Jan was suggested, subjected to years of emotional, sexual, and psychological abuse by Robert Berthold. Um, and then uh, Sky Borgman directed the documentary Abducted in Plain Sight. It was released in 2017. Some of you didn't know that. I didn't know that until a couple weeks ago, um, which told Jan's story. Um, when it was released on Netflix, though, this year, correct this year? Mm -hmm. Um, it became one of the most buzzed about true crime documentaries in recent memory. If you guys know this, everybody was telling me, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, you have to watch this. Um, and really, that was, that was the, as soon as it came out, it seemed like it was just this huge thing that everybody was talking about. So I am so excited to have this opportunity to speak with both Sky and Jan today. And thank you both and welcome. Thank, thank you. you, Esther. <laughs> so when we, watch this documentary, we, of course, you were telling us the story. Um, and obviously, at some point, you learned about the story. And that was my first question was, how did you, how did this film become, come to be made? Like, how did you two meet? And how did you decide this is a story I want to or need to tell? So the book that Jan and her mom, her mom really wrote it, but, but Jan and, and Marianne had sort of come together to write this book, and it was really Stephanie Toby, who's in the audience out here right now. Um, <laughs> she found the book and um, reached out to me, and, and we all decided that this was a story to tell, and I think really what I found the most intriguing about it was I just had no idea how something like this could happen. And, and I needed to find out. I wanted to, to figure that out, find out how a little girl could get kidnapped by the same person twice. And, and so what really happened after that was a much more investigative journey than I really sort of thought it was going to be. Um, and we did a lot of, we did so much research. We read the book and then we went on to, to scour through newspaper articles and source those and also FBI documents and, and really sort of dive into other elements of the story that, that weren't in the book. And, and that's really how it started. That was back in 2014. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't a big budget documentary. It was a very, you know, bootstraps documentary. It was a small crew of women that came together that decided we wanted to tell Jan's story and, and we put it together. And it took us a while because we were constantly doing fundraising, um, putting our own money into it and, and really wearing a lot of different hats at every different turn. And it took us about three years to get the film finished. And then, like you said, you know, in 2017, 
we launched it on the festival circuit and then spent another two years really on the festival circuit publicizing it. Um, Netflix picked it up in 18, January of 18, to launch it in January of 2019. And that's when, that's when the wildfire really started, was with Netflix. <laughs> yeah, Netflix, is, they're the king makers, right? Yeah, <laughs> queen makers. Yeah, queen makers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have a sign yet? What is that one? Boobs. Oh, I don't know. Something. <laughs> so, so you approached Jan then after you read the book. It was, yeah, it was really Stephanie who uh, reached out to Jan first, um, but it was reading. They had a mutual friend and, um, and passed the book off between Stephanie, you know, when she got kind of obsessed about true crime stuff. Does anyone understand that? <laughs> okay, yeah. So, that's weird. <laughs> I so weird. <laughs> um, and put them in contact, and that's really how they met, and then, and then, and then I came on board. Yeah. So what did you think, Jan, about having a film made out of your story? What, was that intimidating? Was that like, oh, yeah, that's what I wanted, or was it totally something out of left field for you? No, it wasn't out of left field. I always knew, like, since I was around 30 years old, I'd gotten through my 20s when I was angry or crying or I missed out on my childhood or I was studying what is brainwashing and how does a manipulator do this. I got to the point in about age 30, and I had gone through a workshop, and I was like, I have to tell my story. I knew, like, in my gut, some people are just meant to, like, open up a can of worms that's way overdue because it just is and I just knew and and so I would talk to small groups big groups you know just whenever someone would ask not on purpose it wasn't like a a job it was just more of a I got to tell my story I think I could help somebody somebody's going to relate to this and so when that opportunity presented itself I absolutely knew that I wanted to and I'd had some other things, you know, for a brief time, lifetime had optioned my story, and then they didn't write the right script, and they didn't do it, and then I'm like, no, and I'm so glad that it worked out when it did. You know, it's kind of like always making sure that you keep going, even when the thing you thought was going to happen didn't happen, but if that's what's in your gut, you keep going, and so when this happened, it was like, I knew that it was the right, was the right, the right time and the right thing, mm-hmm. and so for me, it really was like, I don't know if you want to call it a dream come true, <laughs> you know, because it's it's a hard story. But I knew the power of sharing a story honestly mm-hmm. and how it could possibly change at least one person's life and maybe many lives if it was told well, which it definitely was. So do you remember the first time you told that story to maybe a small group or a large group and what? how did that change it for you? Like yeah, I do. I remember it was a small group of ladies who knew about my story, and I, we didn't have even the self-published book yet. And I sat around at a lunch, and they all just asked me questions because they had heard from another friend, oh, Jan has this crazy story. And I remember just the... Um, nobody really moved for about two hours. It was just listening and then asking a question and wanting to know more and I remember leaving that and thinking oh this really did have an effect on people like they got to also share maybe not as crazy a story but 30% of this room right here has a story that has something to do with abuse as a child those are just the statistics and it was true at that table with that small group of my really friends 
it was 30%, and it, it would be true if it, we raised our hands in this room or in a room of 5,000, or when you go to Dr. Oz and you got 30% of the audience going, it happened to me, it happened to me, and I just knew this is something we are not talking about that is absolutely critical that we bring that message forward, not knowing this would happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was going to ask you this later, but I'll ask this now because I think it, it's relevant, is so how did you... I mean, obviously you had this experience, and was that like the first portion of your healing, or did something have to come before you were able to tell that story to start? Yeah, and I think things come in stages of your life. Like when you're in this stage, there are certain things you have to deal with, and then all of a sudden now you're married and you have a child. There's a whole different thing of dealing with, okay, what is, what is a normal you know, sex life, you know, or what, how, can I get there? Well, maybe not in this marriage, so we'll try one more, you know. I've had a few, you know. But it is, it's interesting, and then you have a child, and then you have a whole different set of emotions and things to deal with. So I think part of the dealing with something that's happened to you, you have to expect it to come in and out, in waves, throughout your life, throughout whatever stage of life you're in, and it may hit you in different ways at different times. And that has been true for me, you know. So, yeah, I, I think just knowing that I knew that I needed to tell the story, it was something in my own gut, and wanting it to um, be relatable because even though my story is crazy, the common denominator is this is three out of ten little girls and it's two out of ten little boys, and that is just not acceptable anymore. So uh, that was the next thing I was going to bring up is, so we saw that Bertolt, we'll call him B, because it's hard to say that name over and over. <laughs> Maybe that way you did it with Bill. <laughs> okay. um, but so B was a pedophile who used these classic techniques like what you're talking about. It's a crazy story, but it's, there's so many common denominators in the experience of child abuse and child molestation um, who use these classic techniques to, to groom his victims. Um, as a matter of fact, even his brother, if you remember in the documentary, his brother Joe said that he, oh, he knew that his brother was attracted to little girls or had this, he said, weird thing about little girls or something like that. Um, but we know that he was a master manipulator who groomed not only you, but really your entire family. Right. And that, I think, is a little bit out of the norm, but not so much. Right. You know what I mean? It's still, there's still hurdles that they know they have to get through to be able to get access to the victim. Correct. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about some of those those classic things or things that you know that you saw as a common denominator that he used to gain power over the you know the family, basically? Yeah. Well, I think first of all, you have to relate it to somebody that you know, love, and trust. I mean, this man moved into our neighborhood. He was married and had five children. And his three oldest sons were the same ages as myself and my two younger sisters. I mean, they looked exactly like any other family in my wonderful, safe neighborhood. It didn't look different. It didn't look scary. It looked like, oh, you know, our best friends. And that's what we became over the three years before he strapped me to the bed of a motorhome and brainwashed me and sexually assaulted me repeatedly. He was like my second father, and we were best friends with their kids, and we did hundreds of activities with this family. So the first hurdle, if you want to call it that, and thank you for saying victims with an S because it wasn't just me, is that you have to be willing to look at 
the majority of abuse, either if you've experienced it or someone close to you, it was by someone that you knew. So the first thing is, are we willing to put up our antenna and see that it is grandpa, that it is the teacher of the year, that it is the neighbor that's your best friend, or, you know, I, I've heard every story. It was my doctor, it was my dentist, it was my this, it was my that. I, I'm, I've gotten 25,000 messages from people that are saying thank you for being my voice, and it was whoever it was for them. And it's someone they know, they love, that is trusted, that's a community leader, that's a leader in their church, in their congregation, in their, you know, it does, it, it, that's the hard hurdle because that's the hard reality. And that is really difficult to do something about because it's in your family or your extended family. That is really hard for people to look at it, admit it, and then do something about it. And I, I, I actually think it's, you know, we say that this story was so crazy and, and so unbelievable and that it, it, it's so, it couldn't happen to other people, but it does. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's part of that grooming of targeting this family and, and seeing the parents and knowing what buttons to push with the parents to get to the kids. And this is how it happens every day with 95% of the kids who are child abused. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not some crazy, wacky, far off, never before happened kind of story. It's right. happening to all the kids, 95% of the kids who are being abused. And I think it, it really is that sort of, that denial that it's so much easier to not see it mm -hmm. than yeah. it is to see it. And that's to me, I think that's the biggest barrier to get through is, is to see it because it's so hard to look it in the eye and recognize what it is. Right. Yeah. I was talking to somebody um, about this the other day. You know, we, we're all listening to these true crime stories and cases and things like that. And, and yet, I feel like most of us still have that disbelief that it could really happen to us, even if we kind of fear it. So, like, for example, to take what you're saying and kind of extrapolate it to take it even just outside of the family to strangers. So, you know, you're in a parking lot at a grocery store, and some person seems like a normal person, dressed normally, and smile on their faces. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry I dented your car, you know, and I'm really sorry. Can you, you know, I need to get your information. You're not going to think, oh, my God, this person is trying to kidnap me or kill me or whatever. You're not, I mean, most of us, I'd say most of us are not, some of you are, you know, but most of us, if we're honest, we're not thinking like that. We're thinking, oh, okay, yeah, we might have that little tingle in the back of our, but we dismiss it. Yes. Every, I mean, almost all the time, we dismiss it, and we're like, oh, no, you know, because then if I, if I, if I'm wrong, if this just is a normal person, I'm going to look like a bad person, judgmental, or judgmental, mm -hmm. or just uh, paranoid, and so we judge ourselves instead of the situation that could be dangerous. Mm -hmm. and, and that's so crazy. You think about that with a stranger. How much more, like with your neighbor, your best friend, your 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 priest, your doctor, your whatever. Yeah. Right. So I think that's one of the first things. Like what you're saying is we really need to, because we try to come at it from out here. Mm -hmm and say, well, that would never happen. That in my family, we would know. I mean, we would know if something like that was happening, or we would, you know, shut that down right away. And we want to believe that. Believe me, I do too. You know, but I think we need to be honest that sometimes that we overthink it, we overanalyze it, and we talk ourselves out of something 
that some really we kind of know there's something wrong here. We're I mean we're conditioned to be polite, especially as women. Exactly. We're conditioned to be polite, and we just have to say fuck polite. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is. That's, a big, that's a hurdle, and that's yeah. a good, you know, good one to really keep in the forefront mm -hmm. of your mind. Because, okay, so if it is a nice person and you say, hey, get the hell away from me, they're going to be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. If they're a good person, right? Are and they'll get away from you. Yeah, <laughs> and they'll actually do that. Yeah, they're like, she might have pepper spray. I'm out of here, you know, whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, what is it really going to harm you for somebody to think, oh, okay, she's paranoid. What, who, so what? You know what I mean? Right. If that's what well, I'm, and I just explained this to somebody in the that I met in the VIP room. Um, I said, you know, you can compare this to. Let's take my case of extreme brainwashing, right? You all saw the documentary. You all raised your hands. That's extreme. You know, he's playing a tape in my ear, and I'm thinking I'm half alien and half human, and I have to have a baby to save a dying planet. I mean, that's pretty extreme, right? So what happens when you have a thought as a 12, 13, 14-year-old that goes, is this really real? Because before I kill my sister or tell her that she has to do the mission, and then I'm going to kill myself because I'm turning 16, I had this all planned, I gotta know if this is really real. What does a brainwashed person think next after the five second thought? They go, I'm just kidding, I know you're watching me, don't hurt my family, I'll do whatever you say. Okay, so now take that into your own home or your own congregation and, and let's bring it home. So you think, I saw something very odd, the way that person in the I don't want to use any certain organization, but the way they touched my child on the back and it just seemed too long and I have this really little tiny blue sound wave in my gut that's making me a little uncomfortable for one second, two seconds, three seconds, four seconds. Okay, what's the next thought? Because you're at the family reunion. Let's use that. And there's that uncle that always gives the kids a sloppy kiss and hugs you just a little too long. What is your next thought after you have that thought? The next thought is, Oh, don't be ridiculous. He's the favorite uncle. Everybody loves them. Blah, 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 blah. It must be me. It it's must be me, right? That's what I'm talking about. It's exactly the same thing. You can take extreme brainwashing or you can go, oh, if I know, love, and trust someone, that could be manipulated into me dismissing something that I actually did for a moment in my gut feel. I see everybody shaking their heads. You get it because you've either been through it or you know somebody who has been. But that is the same comparison. And if we can get that message out, that people do that, we'd sweep that away and under the rug because I don't even want to see it. I don't want to know if it's grandpa. I don't want to go put grandpa in jail. Half my family's not going to believe me anyway. It's, it's really hard, but this really is like... It's going to be our 20 and 30 year olds that have those things, they're born with them in their hand and they know everything and they're not going to put up with any bullshit because of this thing. They're the ones that are going to stand up and say no and they're going to bring it out and they're going to be brave enough to put that person in jail. I really believe that. My generation is just a little too nice, a little too polite. You know, I mean, I'm not now. Now I'm like a tiger. <laughs> but, but seriously, it really is true. So that's the same thing when people are like, well, what is, you know, mental manipulation? I'm like, it's as simple as that. If you're rewarded and therefore you don't say anything, 
or you're polite and therefore you don't really let something sink in or cause you to maybe write it down and say, okay, for the next 10 times that I'm around that person, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out how my child acts and I'm going to look at those things and I'm going to keep my antenna up instead of, oh, that's impossible. He's the gymnastics coach for all the Olympians. He couldn't be a bad guy. So for 20 years, we're going to have the secondary thought. We got to quit having the secondary thought and pay attention to the gut feelings that I believe we have as human beings to protect ourselves and our kids. Exactly. Yeah. I wanted to bring up the idea of family because that is another very powerful um, unit that we we work within parameters of what we've experienced in the family, what we're taught in the family, what the family does and doesn't do. And I think it's really important because it, it's the family is like a closed organization mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Where it doesn't go out, I mean, it doesn't go outside of the family except for certain people or things or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, that could be that. So I feel like in watching this film that in some ways, or maybe in a lot of ways, that he was able, he was able to take control over so many people for so long because of the family was a closed unit, correct? Um, and there was a definitely, and again, because this happens in family, or like what you were just talking about, not just families, but overall, is that there was a definitely denial happening, you know? Like you said, don't want to see it, don't, I must be seeing this wrong, I don't we're know. We're super open, we love everybody. Yeah. All those things, which are good things, but they can be bad things and yeah. manipulated. So a person who, who understands this, and this would be a person who's a sociopath and a person who's a manipulator, sees this, knows exactly how to work that, right? So can you talk about that a little bit, like maybe like the family dynamics and how do you think that maybe this helped for him to you know, reach that purpose that he had mm -hmm. because of he was working within one family? Yeah, um, and you might want to mention some things because of his brother being in the film too right. that I think also talks into that. It's so interesting how people know stuff and they still are just like, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But for my particular situation with my mom and dad and my sisters, I mean, my parents would have stepped in front of a moving train for their children. They literally did not know what a pedophile was. They wouldn't, when it was explained to them, they were like, there is no possible way. This man, I mean, we're ready to sign the papers. Like, if we die, they'll take our girls. And if they die, we'll take their five kids. I mean, it's that close, right? So that's the first thing, is that, again, you're manipulating a, 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 a deep, not just a surface level, but a deep level of trust. So you've got that manipulator who's trying to find, okay, I'm going to find this person's weakness over here, and I'm going to separate Marianne over here, and oh, my word, you know, I'm sorry, I go into like these little stories, and I want to just tell you how he was, you know, I want to like play him in the movie or something, but it was like that, he would be, he's the kind of person that would be when my mom was alone, like, oh, Marianne, you have the most beautiful legs, and I mean, you know, I know Bob just can't satisfy you, we should run off together, and I mean, he would do, and my mother would be like, oh, stop. Up, you know, but she's she's being manipulated. Right. She's and that's why my parents I have to give such great honor to because they were so honest. Do not all of us have something that we might actually not want the whole world to know? Or, or are they the only human beings on the planet? And so it was really hard the backlash at them. But my mother said it best. She's like, if people are talking, whether they're mad at me or your dad, 
it doesn't matter. They're talking about something that they otherwise would not be talking about. And by saying all of it and laying out total honesty out there, maybe someone will, will you know, connect the dots and say, oh, I can see where someone might be manipulating me and they're not really in love with me. They might be after my kid. You know, it's, it's like those are, the, those are the dots that we hope will get connected by this because he really did. He was a master at knowing how to separate each person. And not just in my family. I mean, the community loved him. The congregation loved him. He was in the papers, the new furniture store business owner. It's, um, yeah, it's deep. It's many layers. And it's, it's one of the things that I, I found so interesting was the way that he was able, and, and this is something that's also very common, in deflecting attention. Right, and, and forcing attention in the direction that he wants attention focused, which is away from him. So he was able to manipulate Marianne with their affair, to manipulate Bob with his affair, to manipulate the church. And so everybody was looking away from him and away from the children. And when you break down sort of the tactics of grooming, and we'll talk a little bit about this in our panel tomorrow at 2.45, if anybody wants to come. <laughs> <laughs> um, steps. You know, six really specific steps. It's it's kind of like it, it's grooming 101. And if you can, they're not that hard. So Jan was just talking about filling a need with Marianne. You know, they're 13, 14 years in a marriage. You know, so the sex drive is maybe gone a little bit. You got kids, you got families, you got careers, you got all this. So you're not trying so hard anymore to be in love. And somebody says, "Oh, how long have you been married? 14 years? Well, hello." Yeah. You know, and they yeah. they find these like little that. things and, and these steps of what they go through. It's not rocket science. And if you can learn to articulate and see those steps, and if you put together one, two, three in a row, you can start seeing this person a mile away mm-hmm. as long as you can figure out those those six steps, or mm-hmm. those first three even. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, what you were saying it is amazing. I thought how honest your parents were in front of a camera to tell this. And I mean, like you said, people were saying, I would have took that to the grave. Are you yeah. kidding me that I would right. put that out there? But you, you articulated very well, like, why? Mm-hmm. Why they decided to do that? And that was a question I had for you, Sky. was, was it... They had a way of getting that done. And we were not in the same room. Everybody was interviewed alone in their own space and time. And the way that, that, that they made that happen was quite remarkable. Yeah. That's what it was, like, it was... Did you have to dig? Do you have to figure out how to structure those questions so they would be asked? Or were they just ready to just give you everything? I mean, I'm not sure how that process would work. It's both. I mean, it's both. You know, I mean, there was, uh, it spent an incredible amount of time um, sort of figuring out the approach of how I was going to go into the interview. The interviews were eight or ten hours long. I mean, they were sitting there with people in a very intimate interaction. And it's, sometimes it's hard to, to recognize how something can be intimate when you've got a big giant camera sort of between you. But, mm-hmm. but if you think about conversations that you've had with people, they're almost always two-sided. You ask us a question, we answer the question, you talk for a little bit, I talk for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then Jan comes up with something else that she wants to say and she adds her little story in. And so, so it's this constantly growing and shifting thing that's happening. Well, And when you're interviewing for a documentary, there's like a question and then the person you're talking to is just allowed to talk without interruption, without you putting your own agenda on it and, and saying, oh, the same thing happened to me and then this went on. And it doesn't happen very often in our lives where people listen to you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in a really deep, 
focused, intense way and just let you tell your story without judgment. It rarely ever happens. And so what happens in this room that you happen to sit in with these people, even though there's maybe, you know, a couple of people there and a camera going and, you know, headphones on and a microphone and a camera, is you get this intense connection. And and I think everybody in the family, I think, felt that. And I think especially, I think Bob felt that. And and was surprised, I think, at the end of the interview with, with how real he had been and what came up with him. And and I think for everybody, I mean, Marianne has, has talked about her story and has yeah. told it for, for years. And I think as the girls, you know, you talked about it a little bit more. But right. Bob had never, I think it was something that he felt he did want to take to his grave. And then when this whole thing started to happen, he knew how important it was to tell this part of the story. And I feel like it was incredibly cathartic for him. So you're, too. so you're a documentary filmmaker, but you're kind of a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> documentary filmmaker, yeah. <laughs> sort of therapist. Slash therapist, yeah, kind of do. Yeah, because you're right. You don't normally sit in a room with somebody who it, the focus is just on you right. and not not the back and forth. Right. It's just yeah. just create that place for them to be able to say whatever mm-hmm. they want to say without judgment. Right. That's exactly what a therapist. Does. And then to keep asking, yeah. you know, well, tell me more about that, and you know, and to keep going in and finding out more to the story that maybe they hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's a, it's a incredibly intimate mm-hmm. an interview kind of situation, and it's really it's really quite powerful. I think. Mm-hmm. Were there parts of the story that you're like, I I just have a hard time even believing that happened, or or how did you? Like for me, it was the aliens. Okay. I didn't. I didn't know. I was just like, "What are these aliens? How did, you know?" And it was like, "How did the? How did it get it set up?" And then there was this, and how did that, and, and all of that. And then, and then I'd even gotten to a point where I was just like, "I don't even care if it's true or not. If this is a story that Jan came up to cope with it, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. Like whatever we have to do to make it through this life, you know. I'm like, great." And then we got an email from somebody else that it had happened to. And she had exactly the same story and said he had used aliens on her, this whole princess alien story. And I was just like, ah, it's true. Because a lot of times what we're doing is we're sort of saying, okay, we're getting this story element and it happened 40 years ago, so there's this memory. And sometimes it's hazy and sometimes the story was just a little bit different. So you're trying to kind of corroborate everything and, mm-hmm. and find the truest truth that's there. And when this, when this woman contacted us and, and said that, that he had used the same kind of manipulative tactics on her. It was just kind of took our breath away, and it was just so uh, shocking, I guess. That was an extraordinary moment, because I never knew that there was anybody else. I knew there were other who we thought had been victims before me, but I didn't have a conversation with them. But this woman was the girl he started grooming by becoming her mother's best friend, and her mother was a psychiatric nurse, so not a dumb woman, <laughs> and was was becoming that mother's best friend, knowing that this other little girl was his next victim before the second kidnapping of me. So he already had the thing planned out, and so when we, I knew her name from a police report that we had uncovered or I I can't remember if you uncovered it or if we had known about her but we knew there was another girl because he was convicted of rape of a child nine years after my second kidnapping and he was supposed to serve 10 years in jail and he served less than a year and when this woman contacted the documentary and then I got to talk to her and she found out 
that he was in jail for less than a year. She had no idea. She just screamed on the phone. She was just, she was just beside herself. And she's like, for nine years, under my mother's nose. You know, it, it just, and I know the two girls after her. I know them now because they found us. So I knew that it happened repeatedly after me. But to have her say, he used those same tapes, and she said I'd never talked about it because I thought people would think I was crazy and that they wouldn't believe me. And I said, I thought that too in my early 30s. And as I was going through and I'd tell my story, and I, I had a few people, you know, make some negative comments or say something to me, and I thought, oh, maybe I won't tell that part because people will not believe me. And then I got to a point in my early 40s where I was like, again, fuck that. I don't care if people believe me or not. This is what happened, you know? And to, to be, to have that validated by somebody else that it happened to, same guy, same thing, that was huge for me. It was a huge, like, oh my gosh. You know, I never thought about I'm that until alone. you just said that, but it's possible that he could have given children these stories because he figured if you ever tell them nobody's going to believe that right. it's going to sound like a kid made it up right yeah. so it's just another layer of, yeah. of hiding. how smart really yeah. he was yeah exactly you know? yeah exactly you were to, um, brought up um his brother joe because he was interviewed how did that come about that his brother his family became part of telling the story well I felt it was very important to try to get their side of it. Um, and so we had continued to sort of reach out to various different people. And Joe, thankfully, agreed to talk to us. And it was, I think the most challenging element of the documentary, from my perspective, was bringing Birch Toll to life. Because we didn't have... Uh, any video with him. We had a handful of pictures that Jan's family had kept. Um, we had some newspaper articles. Uh, we found those tapes, which were a great way of bringing him to life. But to be able to talk to his brother was really, uh, really an amazing thing for us because it was sort of, I mean, it's not him, but it's part of the family and getting his perspective. And so it was very interesting um, when we went out to interview him because we, we didn't quite know what to expect. We, we didn't know if he'd do the interview. You know, we talked to him on the phone a couple of times and, and thought we could certainly go out to his house and he could say, yeah, I'm not going to do this. Um, but it's really fascinating because what he wanted to do was really give his brother a voice and he wanted to tell his side of the story and his recollection kind of of what had happened and essentially stand up for his brother. And it's, it's a really curious thing to me because you know, this dichotomy of this man who knows his brother's a pedophile and can sort of laugh about it. And it, while we were interviewing him, I was sitting there going, wow, and thinking a lot about sibling love and what that is. And what, like I think about my sister, I'm like, what would she have to do for me to turn my back on her? And I'd never turn my back on her. No matter what she did, I'd never turn my back on her. And so this, this sibling love, like that started to really sort of cut through a little bit with Joe. And regardless of, you know, this sociopath and this brother that, that knew he was a pedophile yet would let his daughter uh, stay alone with Birch Told, and we were like, wow, how, why, you know this? And he's like, we'd never touch my daughter. And Again, so, same thing. Yeah, that denial and, and all of that. So yeah. it's, you know, I mean, I, 
I don't know. It was really, he was a fascinating, he was a fascinating person to sit down with and really, you know, sort of opened a lot of little doorways into a lot of other layers to this story. And that was the question I had because you were able to talk to him and I don't know if you were able to talk to anybody else in his family, but did you get a sense of maybe that family of origin and how that maybe contributed to this, you know, who he became and what he became at all? Well, I mean, there was abuse in his past, and he talked about that with with Bob. Birch told talked about that with Bob, and um, and there's still this. You know, it's funny because even later, when I, I talked to Joe Birch told afterwards, he's like, "That abuse, that never happened." And you go again. You know, it's this denial entering into it, and you know, and Birch told himself that it had happened in, in court. You know, when he was talking to Jan and. But, of course, he could have been lying. And so, you know, there's all of this, this kind of stuff. I mean, there was definitely a broken family that was part of his past and marriage and remarriage, and, and he had worked very hard. And they'd all worked very hard sort of growing up. Um, to be able to sort of pinpoint one sort of family dynamic or something that had happened in his past that would point to him and say that's why he became a pedophile it's just impossible, right. you know, it's impossible to do something mm -hmm. like that. But, but, but there was definitely, you know, I feel like he made his way through life figuring out how to be the salesman, how to be friendly, how to coerce people. And once he figured out he was good at that, it's like all of us, when you figure out you're good at something, you keep doing it and you get better at it. And I think, I think he did that. And then he, he realized this proclivity that he had and how he could get, get into these situations where he had access to girls and I think I think it was all sort of this this sequence of events that happened in his life that led him there. Yeah. So keeping with this theme of, of family, I was wondering about your siblings, about mm -hmm. your sisters, and how this how this affected them, how they took this into their life or what you know, what the follow up was for them as being, you know, Yeah, and that would be an interesting like if there were more ways to have a you know, conversation with each one because they were affected in different ways. But that's the thing, even though, you know, I've been so, you know, grateful for the empathy and the sympathy that I've experienced from people and, and knowing, you know, there was more than one victim. I was just one and it was extreme, but also my sisters experienced very definitive types of trauma that have affected them and 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 we've all worked really hard to get to a place in our lives where it's not in our life all the time like we're really trying and have really come together as a family and as individuals and you know with our children and our marriages and our our families that we have to you, you know it takes something to get there and for me that access was partly forgiveness you know and and being able to not excuse what he did, I would have put him in jail for the rest of his life, it's not that, but not to have those prison walls around myself. Because sometimes if you hold on to something and you don't get the help that you need and you don't do the work to come from that 10%, I like to call this terrible experience, into the 90%, which I believe is the rest of your life, where you really stand for that, that life that you can love and create newly and not be stuck over here, you know, that's, that's the prison. Mm -hmm. The prison is to be a victim your whole life. The prison is to be, you know, a messed up traumatic 
mess. That's the prison. So let's choose something different here. And if I need help to get there, I'm going to go get it. You know, and I'm going to stand for my emotional and my mental health. And I'm going to make sure that other people around me, my own sisters and my parents, we all did a lot of talking. And it definitely did have an impact on each person. And I don't know if my mom or my dad really, my dad, I don't know, he's, he died in November. And I don't know if he really ever forgave himself for his mistakes. You know, he felt like, I'm the, I'm the daddy, I should have protected, I should have known. Like we all think, you know, but he didn't know. And he was a wonderful father. So I look at my sisters, my, my youngest sister who's adopted two children that are just beautiful, my sister Karen who has a family of five children and a healthy, happy marriage. I look at myself and my son and my stepdaughters, you know, I've had a couple marriages along the way, so I've collected some wonderful people in my life. Mm -hmm. And you know, you just have to look at the positive parts of those things and how do we get there. Mm -hmm. And I really, you know, I admire every member of my family because it was traumatic for each and every one of us. And how do you feel like you were, you interviewed her, her sister as well, Susan Karen, and, and what story was it do you think that they wanted to tell, or do you feel like that was done, or is there more that you wanted to do? I, it would be fascinating to do, I think, to do a, a, a documentary on the fringe characters in a story like this, because I think that it's, that Jan gets so much of the attention, and and that has an effect on everybody around her, and I think mm -hmm. especially her sisters, mm -hmm. and 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 they feel a certain amount of guilt for wanting more attention for themselves mm -hmm. because they weren't the ones kidnapped, and then to feel guilty because you're not the one kidnapped, mm -hmm. that's a bit of a mind bender, you know. So there's a lot of there's a lot of really interesting psychology, I think, to not to be the one not kidnapped, mm -hmm. and how does mm -hmm. that follow you through your whole life and and there's something really interesting about it and there's so much love in this family there's so much love that the Brobergs have for each other and but it's always been Jan at the center a kind of holding this not holding them together but she's at the center of this family and so to find out from everybody who's on the periphery and how that affects them and how that has affected them their whole life I think there's some really really interesting interesting story points there yeah. and Jen being the center how, how is that I mean it sounds exhausting <laughs> yeah. I'm a little tired <laughs> I mean is, are you always kind of okay, how do I respond to this because, you know, how is this going to affect the people around me? I mean, I would imagine because yeah. you brought a lot of that in from your life since the time you were a ch very young child. Yeah, I think I'm a, I'm, maybe it's being the oldest child. You're a natural protector, right? Yeah. I think there's something in me that just is that way. I came that way because of where I landed in my family. But, but I do have that sense still. Like I was always protecting Karen. Like, why don't you swing her again? Because Birch told would swing me one or two or three more times than he'd swing her around. And it's Karen's turn. It's Karen's turn. You know, I was always trying to make sure that things were equitable mm -hmm. with my sisters. And then, of course, the big threat that Susan was half alien and half human and she'd have to do the mission if I couldn't do it. And, you know, it's like you really don't realize how, like Sky said, would you ever turn your back? So how do you do that? Not, how do you put somebody in jail that you feel that way about? And, and that's what really 
the biggest message here is we cannot just turn a blind eye anymore. That's really hard. And I, it's a big ask, and it's a big message to end something like this that's been such an epidemic. But I just, I just think that protection, I've realized I can't protect everybody, I can't heal everyone, but I could be maybe the pathway to some hope. Like there is hope beyond whatever that trauma or that traumatic part of your life is. And I feel like I've even been that for my own family. I've spent more time trying to make sure that my mom and dad realize you also were a victim. You also were groomed. You know, forgive yourself so that we can move on, you know, together. Uh huh. And I think too, it was, I mean, it was Jan's biggest worry with the film and with doing this project Mm -hmm. was how, how it would affect her parents. Yeah. And it was really, it was really, it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was hard. Especially those first couple of months where there was so much, you know, hate and pointing of fingers. And I'm like, every time you point the finger at my mother or my father, he won. The pedophile, the master manipulator, the sociopath is winning. And it would just make me so crazy. But then my mom is just the one who said, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're mad at me or your dad. They're talking about something that nobody has been talking about and that so many people have been affected by. So once my mom said that, my sister Susan, that's an attorney, she quit trying to take things off her Facebook page. And, you know, and mom's got a little memory problem these days, so really she won't remember anyway. You know? But it's interesting how much we all want to protect each other because you go through something like that and you really do feel like, man, this is an amazing group of people, my family members, and I really do want people to know how amazing they are. So, yeah. That's, that's, that's the word we were talking about, Mom. That's the word that came to my mind. That's amazing that yeah. she could say that, you know, and mm-hmm. again, as a mother. Right, and some of the things that, that, you know, the documentary doesn't have time to tell are things like, you know, my mom went back to school after we all graduated from college. She became a social worker. She placed hundreds of children in good foster homes and in adoptive homes. And she studied and wanted to make things right. You know, it's interesting how every member of our family is affected Mm -hmm. traumatically, but also on the other side of that is what do I do now? Mm -hmm. And how do I want to show up in the world moving forward and and what can I do now to make a difference so that's the other side of that you know that's right so one of the last things I wanted to bring up is switching kind of gears a little bit because you know we're all true crime people and we love the investigation part of stuff and I was going to ask you about the FBI agent was he the only one because you got the files correct right was he the only one that you kind of was helping you with this um, that you interviewed yeah well Yes, kind of. He he um, was the only one that appears in the film, and he was the only one really helping us, and, and he was on the case. And, and it had gotten to a point where we had gone and interviewed a couple of experts. Like, we went and talked to a forensic psychologist, and we talked to an expert in kidnapping that hadn't been part of Jan's family's story. And through the various different incarnations of edit, we really sort of were circling around and figuring out different ways to structure it. And, and came back to really wanting it to be about the family and what their experience was. And so these experts that we had interviewed who gave us incredible insight into how something like this can happen didn't end up in the film. Their faces didn't end up in the film. Their information infused the film at every step of the turn. But, um, but Pete was the only, the only one of the FBI agents who worked on the case who we interviewed. And what was so lucky is that when he retired, he took the box 
of, I mean, so many papers and things that, that he had, right? Somewhat illegal. <laughs> oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, maybe I edit that out. I don't want Pete it's going to jail. <laughs> but it's amazing because so many things, they, they destroy documents after so many years. They don't have them anymore. So that was yeah, an we went, amazing. We went to the FBI and, and, the, you know, and we had asked for access to the records and all this kind of stuff, and they said they had been destroyed. So. Yeah. I mean, because you're really hearing. Those little girl voices are really us. His mm-hmm. voice, that's really him. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to have that kind of, you know, stuff in a film that you're like, is that really him or did they reenact that? No, that is really, that is really us. Yeah. You know, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's a, quite a get for that. For yeah, that film. really exactly. So from interviewing him, the, for Agent Walsh, about what did you learn about how this kind of crime was investigated back so many years ago? Yeah, it's really really come a long way, I think, the FBI has, because especially at that time, you know, they were all about stranger danger, and they didn't really have any kind of concept that it was, and it, it was the same then, it's people, it's people that people knew, you know, it's people you know, love, and trust, where the majority of the abuse is happening, and it was really during this time in the 70s and into the 80s that they were starting to figure that out, and profilers and were at Quantico and they were figuring things out and so it was it was through this case and sort of pivotal cases similar to this throughout that time period that they started changing the way that they conducted their interviews in this in this kind of situation and so that's fascinating you know that period of time and and even you know I mean it was in the 80s before uh, we had uh, the milk carton, people right. appearing on the milk carton, missing kids on the milk carton, and, and Aton Potts, and all of this was happening in that time. And even, you know, when we talk about Stockholm Syndrome, Stockholm Syndrome happened in Stockholm in, like, 1972, so it wasn't coming into really any kind of American public consciousness mm-hmm. for quite a few years after that. So the psychology of this and really understanding how a pedophile works and how it infiltrate he or she infiltrates a family was was really groundbreaking stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, Stockholm, I don't know, even it was even after, way after Patty Hearst, right? They yeah. even started talking about that. Until, right. Because at that time it was just like, okay, she's a criminal, whatever. You yeah. Know, they didn't understand it until right. much, much later, so you're right. Yeah. Yeah, there weren't even child abuse laws. I mean, it's interesting. You talk mm. about all the different, you know, rights of people. Children, I mean, you, could, you couldn't beat your animals, but you could beat your children. Mm-hmm. That was not a, a law. There was nothing there yet in the 70s. So it's interesting that those child abuse kinds of laws were just starting to be talked about. And federally, you know, okay, we should have some laws. But now every state has to kind of adopt their own. And then after that, who are the therapists and who are the psychiatrists and the psychologists who are now going to support what happened? Those were things that were just being discovered. I mean, it's really interesting to me. And then you go into the, yeah, you go into the 80s and 90s and you look at all the child abuse scandals, you know, the McMartin child abuse scandal in the 1980s and 90s and, and how, and believing children and then the backlash to believing children and that backlash to believing children because of the McMartin case and because of these scandals in the 80s and 90s where we believed kids wrongfully convicted hundreds of people. Now, because that psychology that was in place. Was yeah, not. and now we're pulling back on this where we're not believing victims anymore. So it's this very interesting cycle if you start to look at how we, we, we believe people, how we listen to them, and how we, we go too far mm-hmm. 
and then we come back so we don't do it at all. And it's, a, it's really interesting to look at the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, and leading up to right now, and how we, how we process, how we talk about, and how we understand how we all deal with abuse and talk yeah. about it and don't talk about it. Right. Yeah. It, it's true, we do that. We go to extremes, oh. one or the other, all the time, and in so many different you know, aspects of life, we do this. And it really has to be because it's more than just black and white, and this is good, and this is bad, this is right, and this is wrong. There has to be so much dialogue about it, and so much conversation and listening to people, like you said, to get the nuances of everything and then decide, okay, wait a minute. So if I understand this, then maybe when I'm, you know, interviewing somebody, you know, about, uh, you know, somebody talking about assault or whatever it is, then I can understand a little bit more, and I can ask the right questions, and I can really gauge, you know, what's happening here. And, but we don't do that. It's just no. like, oh, okay, well, this isn't that. Oh, no, no, we don't. We don't. We don't yeah, there's that. power in telling a story, mm -hmm. and and there's a huge power to it. And just, you know, the couple of, you know, when we were on the festival circuit with the film, and we would watch the film and have questions and answers afterwards, and people would tell us stories of abuse that had happened to them, sometimes for the first time in their lives, because they felt it was okay that they weren't alone, that they could finally talk about this in a room full of 300 strangers. Mm -hmm. And so this power of storytelling, and the storytelling yeah. on a massively big stage like what Jan is doing, mm -hmm. or in a tiny, tiny room if you're telling your best friend. You know, that, that storytelling is powerful, and, and it connects all of us. And mm -hmm. I think there's something, you know, I mean, we're starting to feel that with, with Me Too and with everybody speaking up and saying, we have a voice and we can use it and we're not going to be ashamed mm -hmm. and we're not going to be put down anymore and I think it's I think it's a really a really wonderful time that we're entering into right now yeah, it could but be, it could swing back the other way that's right we have too, too much I know. <laughs> because there's so many more venues now to have yeah. that you know podcasting yeah. and documentary filmmaking and all these different streaming services and now they're picking up these things and people are being able to, to access them and see them and and share them with other people, and so yeah, so it's 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 something that's really good that's happening, but we have to be responsible. I think what you're saying yeah. about it, you know, right. for sure. So we we'll have a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you guys really quick before we end, like what's what's happening now? What's projects working on now? Or are you just tired and you're just taking a break? <laughs> <laughs> or you're like, no, we're ready to go. We've got other things in the pipeline that we're working on. You just need six months yeah. <laughs> just to rest, go to the Bahamas or something, and then we'll think about it. No, no, we, d we are hoping that there will be, you know, some other things. And so it's kind of like looking for the next opportunity and trying to fit those pieces together, I think is really, we, we, we realize that if there was more to come. I have a book that's coming out called Abducted in Plain Sight and that'll come out probably late summer, early fall that is the story with so much more detail that you can kind of get sucked in and see how the grooming happened and, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a nicely written and it's pretty comprehensive um, book but like I'm hoping like I want to write a book called Living in the 90% like what I said before going from what happened to how do you live your life today and how can you help and inspire others by maybe what's happened to you but not letting it run your life. So there's that, you know, things like that. But, you know, we, we're, we're, we're open ears, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're looking yeah. because I think telling the story more fully in more episodes or more, more ways, you know, there's so many ways, like you said, 
a podcast, we're hoping to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just a matter of finding the right fit, I think, right. for what's next. At least that's my, I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. <laughs> Are you having your next film in mind, or are you just... Oh, I've work? got a lot. I've got a lot in mind. There's so many. Um, I, you know, I'm constantly... I like true crime a lot. I, I'm, not, I'm not your typical true crime person in, in the sense of I, I, I really much more like exploring the human condition. Um, if it's just kind of, you know, murder and this, I mean, I, I, I like to have something a little bit more that I'm completely perplexed by to really sort of dig into and, and follow. So, um... So I, I've got a number of projects that I'm, I'm developing and and sort of actively working on. So um, I'll keep you posted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be looking forward to those. I think that'll be really great. So you guys, I just want to take um, one last to thank our guests for coming, Sky Boardman and Jan Brober. <laughs> thank you. And tell them about your... Um, your session tomorrow because they could ask there'll be Q&A and, and all of that right yes there will be we've got we, it's packed like it's only an hour and we've got a lot to fill so we're going to keep it short yeah I know I have a hard time <laughs> now look at me you get shorter answers okay um, I so just we, did a TEDx talk and I had 12 minutes to change the world <laughs> it was pretty it was pretty awesome yeah, we have an hour to change the world tomorrow okay, so um, but there will be Q&As but um but we are going to go go through kind of show a couple of little like two minute clips a few two minute clips from the film and and talk about the steps of grooming and um and Jan's really going to sort of tell us what her experience was in these situations and and we're going to open it up for questions and answers so so please um please come it's I think it's going to be really great I think it's going to be kind too. of informative I think it'll be really really it's the mean, first time we've done this so this is we'll awesome see. and this is off the cuff discussion I think they I mean they're amazing you guys are both <laughs> amazing speakers it was just so fun to listen to everything and, and great questions too yeah and, so and, and, and can I acknowledge the room just really quickly mm -hmm. because I know that the people that showed up here tonight, you came for a reason. And I don't know exactly what your reason is, but there's great love from here to there. And I want you to know that I, I respect that, that you came for whatever your reason was. And I want you to feel empowered and loved and not alone. And I want you to keep fighting the fight in your own individual specific way. I really am so happy that you were here. So thank you for coming. With that, thank you so much, everybody. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.